The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob and Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob and Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason. Guest host Andy Kamenetsky is back. Andy, thanks for doing this. Anytime, man. I've said it. Sue is definitely coming back to the show. She's just taking a brief hiatus, but we've got an excellent and capable uh, guest host to step in and do this, which is great. Oh, I, I appreciate it, man. It's fun to do this. You know, it, it seems like just yesterday I saw you. Yeah, it, actually, it does. <laughs> yes. uh, our guest today is a great one, Chakudi Awuju, who is uh, one of the stars of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. By the way, practiced the name many, many times in order for it to roll off my tongue the way it just did there. I'm going to be just calling him Hey Man. He plays the, uh, the villain <laughs> in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And I thought we would talk about first uh, Robert De Niro, who just had, this came out yesterday, just had a baby at the age of 79. He's now got seven kids. Uh, you're a dad. You've got yes. several children, right? No, I've got one. Just one. <laughs> got, I always mix got, that up. I've got one, and I'm, I'm considerably younger than 79. Yeah. So what do you think of a guy having a baby at the age of 79? Um, okay. I preface this, obviously, by saying congratulations to the extent to Robert De Niro and the extended De Niro family. Cheers! And, and all of uh, this new child's siblings, of which I believe they range from ages now uh, two weeks old to like 50. Uh, <laughs> I think it's... I don't think it's seeing the whole board okay. having a child at 79. Um, yeah. like Just thinking about this from the perspective of a parent myself, Yes. And wanting to see my child grow, wanting to see what their life is like as an adult, wanting to be there for landmarks and also wanting to be there for my child, for the thing my child needs from their parent. Robert De Niro would need to live to like 96 years old just to see his child graduate high school. And 99 for the wedding? Yeah, well, this kid's got, there's a lot of pressure to get married early. Exactly. A lot of pressure, like pre-20 marriage, that sort of thing. There's going to be, I think, a fair amount of pressure on the adult siblings to help take care of this child that's like anywhere from, I don't know, 30 to 50 years younger. So what is the cutoff age? Like, what's the reasonable cutoff age for somebody to have a kid? Like, for example, I and Juan have talked about adopting a kid. We are right now child-free. Not childless, we're child-free. And we've talked about it, but I'm 58 years old. Is 58 too old to start? Uh, And by the way, it's not going to happen. It's been discussed. It's definitely not going to happen. But if I wanted to, is 58 too old? Okay, first of all, I cannot emphasize this enough. It really shouldn't happen. (laughs) Um, it's, It's... I love you, Mason. You know this. <laughs> it's such a terrible idea. Yeah, I would I mean, be such, such a such a bad dad. 
I mean, I think you would be a dad who cares about his child. I don't think you're necessarily equipped to do this. Um, I think Juan has enough enough on his plate just raising you. Yes, yes, it's very um, true. He is he's like the dad of the house. Um, just like on the show, Ireland's like the dad on the show. <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, he is. Um, I have a couple friends who've had children in their 50s yep that feels like you are pushing the envelope 50s me. is pushing yeah i mean the, again the idea of okay you're 50 52 when your child graduates high school you're going to be 70 you know like 70 years old it's it is old at like 63 to go have a catch yeah <laughs> yeah no have a catch yeah no but 70 is the new 58. <laughs> no, it really, no, it's, well, then, it's what, really not. Well, then what's 80? Because De Niro's almost 80. <laughs> yeah, He's no. closer to 80 than 70. De Niro, it's just weird. 79 is just weird. If I were yeah. to do it, I don't think it would be weird. I think it would be uh, unexpected. I think people would be very surprised. I think people would be very worried. But 58, I, mean, I think I could pull it off. Look, uh, just so we, you know, in the in the... A case of fairness just you know in the interest of fairness we make sure that we present both sides of this and the glass half full kudos to Nero for actually being able to do this at that's 79. a good point yeah yeah like just just the fact that he is medically physically <laughs> able to pull this off yeah yeah good for him uh so i thought baby aside hell of a way to promote a new movie he's got coming out yeah, he does. He's got he's got a new movie with Sebastian Maniscalco. Who mm -hmm. do you know who Sebastian Maniscalco is? I know the name. I don't off the top of my head know. In who my is. world, I cannot believe my mom and not stepdad Leo have seen Sebastian Maniscalco twice and say funniest thing in the world. I've watched his Netflix specials. Really, really funny about his Italian American family. Um, and nobody I know, uh, like at the station, has ever heard of Sebastian Maniscalco. I've heard again. I've heard the name, but I don't know why I've heard the name. Right? Yeah, he's maybe I've heard the name. Maybe I've heard the name from you telling me. It that probably your mom is. is not stepdad Leo. I've been leading the Sebastian Maniscalco train. So I, you know, any any podcast can do best Robert De Niro movies ever and go mm -hmm. with Godfather Two and Heat and Raging Bull Goodfellas. and Taxi Driver and Casino and Goodfellas and all that stuff. I thought. Let's do the most underrated De Niro movies. Like, if you're listening right now, some of these movies, I have a feeling you may not have seen. Okay. These are gems, but not ones that everybody knows. Okay. Uh, I thought about this just in the combination of the movie itself and also the De Niro performance. Yes. Um, there were a few runners up, but my number one was Jackie Brown. Oh, and Jackie Brown is so good. He, first of all, I think it's Quentin Tarantino's most underappreciated movie. I think it's gained some fandom over the years and some appreciation. But you know, love still... Pam Greer. I got to interview Pam Greer when that movie came out. She is just a classy, I mean, amazing career. Yeah, incredibly, incredibly talented. But I, I think it's still kind of under the radar for a lot of movie fans, even Tarantino fans. De Niro plays this ex-con who is like an underling of Samuel L. Jackson's gunrunner character in the yes. movie. He is dumb as a rock, easily frustrated. Um, his girlfriend is Bridget Fonda, right? Yes. Well, his, 
Bridget Fonda is actually Samuel L. Jackson's girlfriend or sort of multiple girlfriends. He he loans her out to De Niro. Um, <laughs> and she's fresh. working a bong the entire time. Yes, yes. And De Niro is so funny in this movie. Like there's a scene where he's trying to, I can't remember if he's either trying to pick up or hang up one of those old phones with like a cord. Yes. And he keeps wrapping himself and unwrapping himself <laughs> in the cord. He can't figure it out. There's no dialogue. It is hilarious. The scene where, spoiler alert, um, he kills Bridget Fonda. Yes. Out of just pure frustration. She's just her. annoying. I'm <laughs> done with is, her. And it reminds me of like some of the other performances and movies I thought about for De Niro. Uh, Angel Heart, Wagon Angel Dog. Heart is great. That's on my list. He plays Lou Cipher. Mm -hmm. Lucifer, get mm -hmm. it? Uh, with Lucifer. Mickey Rourke, uh, directed by Alan Parker. Great, great movie. Mickey Rourke at one of his best performances, one of his absolute sweatiest performances. <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> um, yes. Set in New it, Orleans. It, oh, yeah. And like the hottest parts of New Orleans. It, I like, I really like De Niro when he's loose and fun, but he's not hammy. Like, I right. think, like, I think when he does broad comedy, he can get kind of hammy. And I don't, think he's as funny but i really like de niro just loose and having fun and those are some movies where i think he's just really good in that space so here's a couple of my picks uh king of comedy oh um, i i love I he love plays king robert pupkin who's mm -hmm. this crazy rupert. guy rupert yeah rupert pupkin and he's he becomes fixated on jerry lewis who's kind of like the johnny carson of the mm -hmm. show winds up kidnapping jerry lewis um, so that he can host the essentially He's, the Tonight Show. So funny. He is so great. Sandra Bernhardt plays his uh, partner in the kidnapping. Yeah, she is incredible. She is in great. this movie. And De Niro actually, in a weird way, kind of plays the Jerry Lewis character in Joker. You're right. Yeah, he becomes the talk show host. Yeah, and that movie heavily influenced Todd Phillips in, in making Joker. Um, another one, and this is another very rarely mentioned, New York, New York, which is a Martin Scorsese movie. It stars Liza Minnelli. It's got the music from Candor and Ebb, including mm -hmm. New York, New York. De Niro plays this saxophonist, and uh, she's a pop singer, and they have this torrid romance. It's kind of like, uh, it's a little bit like A Star is Born. Right. Um, it's got that sort of vibe to it, and I thought it was great. I have not seen that movie in, I don't know, probably 20 to 30 years. I remember not liking it, but I wonder if I should give it another look. Yes. Um, I, I, it may have been, I, I, you know, when young man in your 20s isn't necessarily the period where you appreciate Liza Minnelli the most. Yeah, so. it's true. It's true. Although, <laughs> yeah. as, as the gay kid, I actually <laughs> did like Liza Minnelli, uh, and she just blows away, um, you know, New York, New York. Which she was written for her, not Sinatra. She is a really talented actress. Yeah. Um, I, I actually recently rewatched um, Cabaret for the first time oh, a couple God. years ago. I hadn't seen it in so long. She's amazing in it. She's amazing. She's amazing. I actually saw that on Broadway with Alan Cumming. Oh. Uh, and he was great. Was he great playing the Joel show. Gray character? Yeah, he was playing the Joel Gray character. And it was... Uh, Natasha Richardson, who was playing the oh. Sally, the late Natasha Richardson, yeah. who was playing the uh, the Liza Minnelli role. And then my third one is This Boy's Life, which is the first time I yeah. ever saw Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, De Niro plays an, ab an abusive dad. Ellen Barkin <laughs> is the mom. And I just thought, 
I, my dad was not this bad, uh, was not as bad as De Niro in this boy's life. But my dad was a big drinker, big, could be a really big, angry guy. So I identified it from that perspective. De Niro always, he always looked a little bit like my dad when he was younger. Um, and seeing that, um, I, I strongly recommend, it's not like, uh, it's not a joyride. No. <laughs> it, is, it is not a laugh riot. I, I talked I talk before about De Niro playing things fun and loose. That is not a fun and loose role. By the way, it came out the same year as What's Eating Gilbert yep. Grape. Um, so Leonardo DiCaprio got nominated for What's Eating Gilbert Grape, even though if it, if it hadn't come out, I think he would have been nominated for This Boy's Life. He was great. Yeah, he held his own with De Niro. He Which was, is he saying was, something. Yeah. Because uh, he was I, a kid. The thing I most remember about that movie is De Niro, he – he has that line he says over and over, I know a thing or two about a thing or two. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Great, great movie. Uh, so there's a, if you're, if you're listening, there are some De Niro movies that you may not have seen before that are absolutely fascinating and great and part of the pantheon of great De Niro performances. I went through his IMDb page. It's unbelievable how many really, really good movies. Like I didn't even mention Midnight Run which is him yeah. and Charles Grodin and uh, hilarious. I mean, there are so many De Niro movies uh, that deserve shout outs. There's going to be a lot of movies for his uh, now newborn to watch. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> if he starts now, <laughs> he'll get through all of them by the time uh, the wedding rolls around, which is uh, 1999 or ni <laughs> no, 99 years old. Yeah. 99 years old. So uh, there you have it. There's some De Niro stuff. By the way, the show is now on YouTube. I want everybody to know this. You can go to YouTube uh, slash uh, Culture Pop Podcast, and there we are. Andy, you make uh, the premiere in the opening Culture Pop Podcast YouTube, and there's a YouTube component now. There is a, there is a YouTube component. It's important to have that. That was the show with Robert Wisdom, he, who was awesome. He was, he great. was great. He was great. Yeah. All right, so our guest today plays the main villain, in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, he is a prolific stage actor. He played Othello in New York for Shakespeare in the Park, among many other acclaimed performances. On television, he co-starred in Peacemaker on HBO Max, and he also appeared in the movie John Wick 2. And you know I love those John Wick 2 movies, John Wick movies. Uh, Chikuti Awuju is with us. Chikuti, thanks so much for doing this, man. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a real so, pleasure. I saw Guardians of the Galaxy 3 last night. I'm a huge uh, Marvel guy. It's mm. such a great movie. Uh, I love the characters, Star-Lord and Nebula and Groot and Rocket, who's got a really tough time in this movie because of you. Uh, I, I know you worked with James Gunn on Peacemaker. How did that lead to you getting this part as the main villain in, in Guardians? Well, uh, there's a big chunk of this that you would have to ask James Gunn because I don't know what went through his head and made him think I should be the right one for this. But on my part, it was the day we were filming the opening sequence of uh, Peacemaker, the dance sequence, you know, <laughs> filming this. And in the middle of the take, James comes up to me and he, he says to me, can I have a word with you? And I jokingly said, is this when you realize you should have hired Chiwetel Ejiofor, not Chikuri Uji? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and he said, uh, no, actually, uh, I actually want you to play the high evolutionary, the main villain in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And I was completely 
flawed. I did my Homer Simpson impression, you know, the silent blink yes. that goes on for ages. I just did that. I think I mumbled some form of <laughs> gratitude. Basically, it wasn't my most eloquent moment because I was completely thrown. And he said, we're going to we'll get together and get a video together and send it off to Kevin and, and, and the team. And But I want you to be the main villain. Um, and that's how it sort of happened. And then about a few weeks later, James has a slightly different version of this. He, he claims he offered it straight to me. I remember thinking, we've got to do a little tape, but I want you to do it, you know? Um, but it took about five or six weeks before we finally got together and they, they built a whole set and it turned in this whole, turned into this whole production number because I guess, you know, it wasn't going to be a casual thing on his iPhone or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, we did this two and a half, two and three quarter hours screen test, but it was a screen test for one because James knew he wanted me. This is just for us to put it on tape as it were. And it was brilliant. And I wish all auditions were that because I had a real uh, ownership to create this role with James, getting direction with other actors, with lights, with the camera. If only every audition was like that, life would be so much easier, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Growing up, how, how up on like the Marvel universe and comics in general had you been like exposed them in child? And I asked just because you lived a few places overseas and I know the cultural currency that they have in America, but yeah. I'm not as sure about them anywhere else. Well, uh, my introduction to my growing up in Nigeria, I lived there till I was 10, my introduction to Marvel was all comic books. You know, I don't, I think there might have been a couple of really bad, you remember the Spider-Man TV series and, mm -hmm. yes. and stuff like that. It was, it was really bad. In fact, if, if only DC had hit it on the, you know, had hit the nail on the head with Superman, which I loved, adored. So really for me, it was the comic books uh, for many years. And we had piles and piles of them because my, my family, my brothers, my older brothers and sister were born in England. So they, you know, they brought their comics with them and then they had subscriptions and they would get new comics every week at the library that was sent over and stuff. So for me, um, the movie side of it really was more DC and I shouldn't really be saying this, but Superman was brilliant. The first two anyway. Yep. And then of course, Batman yes. nailed it. And for the modern area, I was like, oh, they can do this because everything had been a really, as far as Marvel went, had been a really big fail up until yes. then. Yes. And, and then of course, with um, Iron Man coming out and stuff like that, you just went, oh, there's the comics, right? I mean, that was the comics in front of me, you know, um, it felt a little bit like that with Daredevil that, you know, when they had it on Netflix also, I re literally remember certain scenes from comic books being reenacted on the, on the show. So Iron Man was the, as far as the movies go, the launch for me where I went, oh, it's very possible to do these and bring them really to life, you know? Yeah. So what's it like to be in a movie that grossed $300 million worldwide on its opening weekend? And, 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 and what's it like to be the bad guy? I mean, it's true. Is it true that bad guy is more fun to play than the good guy? Absolutely. Ask any good guy and ask any bad guy. They will say, yes, you know, the, uh, you know, first of all, your first question being part of this movie, I can't guys, I can't wrap my head around it. It seems you know, you go by day by day, you do the job, you hope it goes well, your loved ones come and see it, they love it, you get all these messages from people, you see the fans loving it. But it's actually an impossible thing for me, at least at this stage for me, to wrap my head around when 
you know, someone says, you know, you're in the number one movie on, on the planet, you know, mm -hmm. there's no, there's no real reference point for that for me because in my heart, I'm still very much a jobbing actor who had this wonderful break and I brought my work to it as opposed to thinking of myself as part of this behemoth, you know what I mean? So I haven't wrapped my head around it. It'd be great to redo this uh, interview in about six months, a year or so, and we can look back at it and I can brag about it. But right now it's, it's, it's bigger than I can conceive. As far as playing the bad guy, I love the fact that the boundaries are so much more elastic the bad guys so there's the stuff on the page but how you go about bringing the stuff on the page i feel uh, the bad guy often offers more flexibility in doing that extremism for me and for me when i think of my favorite actors like gary oldman alan rickman viola davis you know all these people that aren't afraid of peter O'Toole bringing theater to film demanding that the camera bend to their rules as opposed to the other way around they were always my heroes so the fact that i've had a chance at a character like this on such a big stage and as i hear i, I i'm one of those I, from my theater background i don't read reviews till i'm very removed from it you know what i mean he said but i hear it's gone down really well and i hear that the hive has gone down really well i can't escape it it makes me very proud because that those are the sort of actors and those are the sort of roles that really left an impression in my head growing up, you know? You mentioned that theater background. I, I remember years ago reading this interview with John Malkovich when he was talking about making Con Air and mm. that he's doing this big fight scene with John Cusack, who's another theater trained actor. Yeah. These guys both have deep roots in it. At one point they were just sort of laughing like, wow, this is different. <laughs> this is not something we're used to. Um, oh, like, not even in a bad way, but just like this is much different with these massive sets in your case, like green screen work, like mm. how much does it just take getting used to that? Like in terms of this is part of my actor process. A lot of um, faking it till you make it. I even felt that every, uh, there's a bit of a imposter syndrome exists in me every time I walk onto a set. And that happened in smaller sets like Underground Railroad or whatever. I felt that much less, and certainly in Peacemaker, much less in a set like Guardians. You and it's that sense of 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 uh, mastering your slight panic and a realization of the responsibility and the fact that I, you know I'm used to on stage, you know, with the cast there, the director, and maybe the stage manager and stuff, and and suddenly you have hundreds of eyes on you, including executives watching via video. It's like, and then this set is in front of you that. I don't know how many sound stages are used for Guardians, but it was a question of faking it till you make it. And the, the, the faking it part was just like making sure I stayed calm and make, making sure I brought my work to it. As soon as the work started, as soon as that wow moment went and the work started and you're engaging, then the experience came in, came back and then I knew what I was there for. But there is a moment where you said they laughed, Malkovich and, and Cusack. And I think it's because there's a giddiness. There's a thing of, am I... Am I really, am I really doing this? You know, I grew up on Eastwood and, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly, the Enforcer movies and, and you know, Escape from New York and all these action, whatever. Right. And then you go, am I Terrence Stamp playing, you know, the bad guy in Superman? I'm like, am I, am I now doing that? It's, it's, it's weird, you know, yeah. but it's beautiful at the same time, you know? 
So James Gunn said this about you. He says, he was along with Viola Davis, Margot Robbie, Benicio Del Toro, and a few others, one of the best actors I've ever had the pleasure of working with. Well, that is really high praise, right? Oh my God, yeah. I, it doesn't, again, that sort of doesn't compute, but it makes me very proud, definitely, you know? Uh, James Gunn, who you worked with uh, on, let's see, you worked with a... Uh, Peacemaker, and now on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, is actually making a jump over. You mentioned the DC Universe when you're growing up. I also mm -hmm. watched the DC Universe uh, when I was growing up. I loved uh, I, I loved all the Batman movies. Um, oh, yeah. How do you think he's going to be? Is he the right guy to take over that entire DC Universe? There is no question in my mind that he's the right guy because not specific to DC, I'm talking about James taking over any sort of studio whatsoever. He is subversive, brave. He knows the fans, he knows the fan base, and he's a phenomenal storyteller. So the guy on top isn't just someone who knows how to run an organization, he's someone who knows how to tell stories. And someone who knows an incredible, you know, think of Guardians, guys. I think of Sliver. Think of Slither. Yeah. Even, even saying to people, oh, I'm doing a horror movie and then giving them the script of Slither, you're like, what the hell is this? Now think <laughs> of Guardians. You're coming to this Marvel universe that's had Iron Man and Captain America and all. And you say, okay, this is... Or when he last went to... When he first worked with DC and was given, as I understand, the pick of things to do. Yeah. Saying, I actually want to do something with a walking weasel. In it, you know, <laughs> there is no one that's going to be more brave, more surprising, and more true to the fans, but also coming at it from an artistic bent, which is about character. He cares about these characters. You saw how emotional this movie was. It had no, you know, a movie with a tree and a raccoon should not have had the sort of punch it does. So I think, I, I think um, DC are, are very lucky to have him, and, and he will do great things there. And there's, there's just, no one better right now to do that for a studio. Speaking of DC and James Gunn at Peacemaker, I, I read that your character on the show, Clemson Mern, that you created a backstory for the character because it didn't exist previously. Right. A, a, is that true? And B, is that nerve-wracking just because comic book audiences are really rabid about what they want? They are not shy about telling you, even in this case, like there's nothing to go on, you got this wrong. Like they're very particular about what they want. So mm. like what what is that like just trying to, I guess, sort of start from scratch, please that audience? I don't think about it. You know, I could have had a real panic with that, and I certainly could have had a panic with high evil, which I knew was going to be a very different kind of high evolution from the comics. But with Clemson Mern, yeah, James. I always use the script. The script is the beginning, middle, and end for me. And when you have a good screenwriter, that's usually the Bible. That's what you need. So yes, there wasn't any, he created Clemson Mern, but some people had referred to him as, you know, Mern, you know, you know, there's a trepidation about him. There's a reputation about him. And then there's that beautiful scene where he talks about entering the body of Mern as a butterfly and seeing this horrible man. So that all just created for me. I just went, okay, ex-mercenary has done horrible things. Those those clues are in the in the script. But then I went, West Point could have been great. I, the, the Shakespearean in me, in, my, in me went for the tragic 
flaw, which all the characters have. They could have been great, but for one thing. And I think his one flaw for me was, was a complete disassociation from humanity. And so this great West Point general that could have been a four-star general ends up in the dark side of Operation Dark Ops, basically, and is brilliant at it. So that's what I created for the Clemson Man I'm inhabiting. And as for the butterfly that inhabited him, that's all in the script, a deeply compassionate um, character. But I don't like to do, honestly, guys, I don't like to do too much homework because you know, homework as in research, the sort of work I like to do is, is studying the script over and over again, reading over, letting my imagination go crazy because there is something that's going to happen when you turn up on set and the other people are in front of you and they see action and suddenly things start happening the way someone says something to you or reacts to you. And, you know, Steve Agee, who I did a lot of stuff in Clemson Moment, is just one of the most hilarious people. And seeing someone as big as him towering over me, squirm a lot, adjusted how I bully him a little bit. Do you know what I mean? And stuff. So, um, as far as that goes, I, I just really feel the minimum sort of research you can clog your head with and hold yourself into the better. You need enough to seed. You need enough to germinate. As soon as you've got that, go see what happens on the day, you know? So you are uh, Royal Shakespeare Company, Shakespeare in the Park, Public <laughs> Theater. I mean, you're a serious stage actor. Uh, Andy and I are both actors of no acclaim whatsoever. <laughs> but we studied um, it. We did yeah, study we, it. We did study. Uh, so what's it like on Broadway, that first night on Broadway? Do you know what's funny is I've never done a Broadway show. Oh, I've really? Stand. I've, I've done BAM. I've done The Public. I've, done, I've never done Broadway. So I'm still waiting for that Broadway debut. I can tell you that, you know, I don't think it'd be much different Broadway to opening night anywhere else. You know, that combination of nerves and excitement and all that stuff and the fact that regardless of all your previous rehearsals regardless of all your previous performances tonight's going to be different because there's a different bunch of people out there and there's a different sort of energy out there but i love it you know there's a, there's a point like i'm nervous for the first preview because the change from rehearsing for yourselves and having an audience is the most drastic in the whole run as soon as the first preview is done and you get that electric uh, communion that only can come with an audience, nerves go out the window. You know, opening night for me, I've always wondered why people fret over it. You've had several shows before that. The big one was first preview. By opening night, all I want to do is show this stuff. It's really mm -hmm. interesting that I, 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 I love a crowd. I love knowing I know people in the audience. I love knowing this mm -hmm. big person is in there. It doesn't make me, I'm like, all right, yeah, come see our work, you know. Um, I'm ex I miss it. I miss that sort of electric um, combination of fear and excitement, you know. Um, there's nothing like it. I mean, there's just nothing like knowing that I can't just say cut. No one can say cut. You know, you got to go and you go with it and you're improvising and you're thinking on so many different levels because it's live. It's right now. You have so much responsibility. The theater is the actor's medium you know, yeah. ultimately a lot more than film on TV because we do our thing and then it, it goes and gets reshaped, as you know. But the theater, the moment that the, the show starts, the run starts, the director and the writers, they, they can do nothing anymore. It's yours, you know, yeah. it's quite incredible.
Well, if, you, if you want to do Broadway right now, let them know your movies gross three hundred million worldwide. Yeah, yeah, this exactly. is the time to get in your That's business. I have, I have some things I'd love to do. So let's let's hope the right people are watching those numbers. <laughs> so I was going to say you co-starred in a BBC recording of King Lear, starring Anthony Hopkins, who is like one of the greatest actors to ever ever live. From Silence of the Lambs to Remains of the Day to The Father, he just won best actor for the father what's it like sharing a stage with him is that is that intimidating yeah, first at all? Of, for, no i would never use the word intimidating because he's too gracious a human being it's um it was a, 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 a made for t it was a bbc movie of king lear and um the first day i met him i had come in late because i'd been filming something else and i'd flown in to meet and we were going to do the the reading the first reading that day and I went up to him in the lunch break, thinking I'd go introduce myself and stuff. We then proceeded to talk for like an hour and we just shared stories. And then he found out I'd done Hamlet and he started to be or not to be. And I said, that is the question. Then we started doing it together, whether it is noble in the mind to suffer the slings. And, but he was so tripping on the tongue that by about the 10th or 12th line, he had left me like two lines behind, hmm. so effortless. And I said, I didn't know you played Hamlet. And he said, oh, I never did. I just love the play, I've read it. And that's the sort of consummate artist he is. And then of course we do the reading of Leia. And this, as you know, with that cast, Emma Thompson, you know, is, is in that a Jim Broadbent. I mean, what a cast, Yeah, all seasoned pros. When he started doing Leia, everyone was like this. Just watch because we sat in a circle and everyone was just and then looking at each other and going. He it was it was a reading and I can tell you it's one of the best performances I've ever witnessed. And that was a reading sat round. Wow. Fast forward a few months later, I'm about to do a fellow in the park. It's eight thirty in the morning, I have my coffee, my phone rings, and it's Anthony Hopkins to talk to me about Othello because he saw that I was going to play him. This is the sort of man he is. So yes, I can get if you feel intimidated. I felt inspired. I realized how much work I still have to do. And that's inspiring when you see that, you know. What, what do you think is the key to these plays remaining so trenchant and so popular, you know, over hundreds of years? Like they're, they're, we will never run out of Shakespeare to perform in theater to adapt like you were talking about for the BBC or other places. It's never going to go away No, because Look Shakespeare's strength wasn't story. In fact, he stole most of his stories and <laughs> when he tried to be more original They're pretty awful His strength was his best plays are those that the story original stuff existed already, you know But his strength is humanity his strength is understanding the cycle of humanity that we never change. And what he does, he took these stories and he delved into character and to how they behave. And he held, as Hamlet says, as to a mirror up to nature. So we go, oh, I know that. So every time we do, a, 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 it's so funny how every time you do a Shakespeare play or something happens and people are really listening because you're doing it well. They ask, often in my experience was like, did you guys slightly change the lines? Because is that talking about Lebanon right now? Is that talking about what just happened in New York? Is that talking about, they think you, I yeah. said, no, no, it's exactly how he wrote it. He just understood we keep making the same mistakes. 
And that's the beauty of Shakespeare is that it doesn't matter what we do, as long as we remain human and as long as we keep making the same mistakes and as long as we keep needing the same balm to heal us or the same advice to move us forward, his plays will be relevant because no one has since studied the human condition and brought it before us in a, as entertaining a way as he has. So he's going to be relevant forever, you know? And it's interesting you to go from Shakespeare back to Guardians. There's something very Shakespearean about about the high evolutionary. I mean, it, there's something his his uh, his speeches about what he you know counter Earth and what he's trying to account all that stuff. It feels Shakespearean. Is that is that sort of in your head as you're going along? It's so funny because right now I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg with this, because that's a comment I've been getting a lot from people and I'm very happy about that because I know my, when I was letting the imagination run wild, I thought of Richard III, I thought of Leia, certainly in his Descent to Madness as we watch him, and I thought of Henry IV um, in part two when he's just aware that his son isn't ready to rule this kingdom and he fears for England and the lion heavies the head that wears the crown. Uh, comes in, but that speech starts with him not being able to sleep and he says how many thousands of my poorest subjects are at this hour asleep or sleep You know nature's soft balm. How about nature's nurse? How have I something, you know, he needs to sleep And I thought ah, that's the high evolutionary. He needs to sleep. He doesn't sleep so, hmm. And I didn't delve in but he doesn't sleep and then that's where the idea of listening to opera and music because the first scene in the script has me listening to space opera so he listens to his classical music so i sent james all a bunch of arias and classical music i love so there was something and guys i'm a product of my life right shakespeare has been a big part of my life so especially with a role like this that can take it a role like this that sort of demands it there's going to be influences from my past but i i you would i hope you get a chance to maybe interview james or something to find out if he how much he adjusted it knowing my background or how much he wanted that part of it but i really don't know now whether it's because I've, I've i've talked about my influence people are seeing it on the screen or whether it really did channel i hope it's the latter because i, I definitely know that there was a bigness about him there was a theatricality about him there was a grandeur about him there was a sense of being good with language and seducing you with speech rhythms and whatever that is very Shakespearean. So it makes me very happy when every time someone says that, I go, that's good because I think I was going for that, you know? <laughs> we, we were talking before you came on about uh, Robert De Niro and underrated performances of his or underrated mm -hmm. uh, movies of his. Mm -hmm. Is there a Shakespearean play that you think is underrated? Just because there's, there's some that have been performed and done so I many different times. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely think, um, and it's one of two that I want to play now, but certainly this one is underrated. I think Coriolanus is underrated. Yeah. yeah. Grossly underrated. It's, it's, for me, it's, it's as good a play as Julius Caesar. Did Hopkins Jim. do that? I don't know if he did Coriolanus. He should have. I hope he did. I mean, I'd have to look at it. I just think it's a great, okay, yes, it's a political piece about power and, you know, all that stuff. But his relationship to his mother, his relationship to honor, his relationship to the cause, the danger of someone that, 
you know, I, I think of Oscar Wilde, patriotism is the opiate of the masses. No, religion is the opiate of the masses, right? And, and his religion was fighting. His patriotism was his religion. Do you know what I mean? And it, one minute everyone's following him, the next they're all not. And you look at our political systems and what happens in the world, and you, you think of, you listen to some of the stuff he says, like, let, um, let not the crows peck the eagles you know he sees himself as the eagles and the people as the crows and you think of Mussolini and you think of all these dangerous people and yet he's the protagonist of the piece you know I I think that's a beautiful that's a really dangerous um play and it's one that you can allows us to see that um there is something seductive about power and very dangerous and how someone and you think about lead some of the leaders in the past from Gaddafi to Idi Amin to all these guys that started off as the hope Mugabe the hope yeah they brought yeah. hope and mm -hmm. how power just corrupted them and I just think it's a delicious play and in some of his speeches you come and you know, you know you, you, I just think I just think it's an underrated play and it's one that I really want to do before too long because i'm getting a bit long in the tooth i want to nail that soon you know <laughs> yeah yeah so we all saw how guardians ended mm -hmm. the great thing about the marvel cinematic universe is that nobody ever actually dies like it's some there's a multiverse so mm. i guess we could see the high evolutionary again right absolutely and i don't I don't believe, I don't think there's a spoiler, but I don't believe you see my death on screen, do you? No, no, we do not. We see you, no, we do not see the death. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, I hope so. My answer to that is I don't know. And that's genuinely, I don't know. It's not me being a coin or anything. No one knows what's going on. Um, but I certainly hope so. It was so, I, I've only scratched the surface for this guy. And there's there's a lot more to delve into i'm not i'm not searching for redemption with this character at all i don't know if there's one but there's there's more fun to be had with him i think personally yeah you know? yeah well it's a it's a great movie uh you're great in it congratulations uh worldwide blockbuster and i i totally totally loved it uh congratulations and thank you very much for doing this man we appreciate it thank you for having me on you guys are great yeah you know in terms of being intellectual he is and i'm i'm not i realize sometimes we have a guest <laughs> on i'm like I'm, I'm not the slightest bit intellectual no that that's a sharp guy uh ivy leaguer <laughs> i believe had a career in economic or a degree in economics before deciding yes. just to move into theater yeah no it worked out okay and now yeah. the movie's done 300 million dollars worldwide by that that's my uh, dog sophie um sophie is uh is alone right now because my other dog ron had to go to the vet so sophie has been pretty well behaved Good. through this through this interview yeah it, can you her voice before we go yeah absolutely this is sophie hi this is sophie this is my voice i love my daddy he's my favorite that is sophie excellent and, and still no voiceover career still no acting career uh. You know, it's all political. It's, it's all, all it know. is. It's all political. It's who you know. And by the way, I know pretty good people, and it still, it still <laughs> hasn't worked. 
Uh, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. Leave us a rating and a review. We would appreciate that. And uh, the show is also on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search Culture Pop Podcast, and you can see the whole thing happen live. All right, Andy, thanks a lot for filling in again, man. Appreciate it. Anytime, man. Just give a call. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.